Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. The waters of the Gulf of Maine are warming faster than almost anywhere on Earth. That's meant a big disruption to sea life, and it's caused an historic boom in the lobster industry. That includes a so-called gray zone, a disputed area claimed by both U.S. and Canadian fishermen. It's a place where lobsters are plentiful and tensions are high. This is an example of how climate change is not some distant, abstract threat, but one that is having an effect on people's lives right now. We're going to take you inside an international lobster war this week on Next from the New England News Collaborative. We'll also look at the state of reliable high-speed Internet service in cities and rural areas. The Internet is, is a utility at this point. It is a necessity in the state of our culture. Plus, you'll get to meet an avalanche dog on Mount Washington and take a slide down a giant luge. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. Let's start our show by considering the necessities of life in 2019. Nobody's going to argue that we need clean drinking water, a way to deal with waste, electricity, some way to heat your home. Getting those necessities can still be a struggle, but they're universally seen as building blocks for a functioning society. So what about reliable, high-speed Internet service? Almost all businesses need it. It's become increasingly important for medical care. And what about students who need it to do their homework? The Internet drives our global and regional economy, but as the need for it grows, the lack of access to broadband is increasingly becoming a problem. So we asked listeners to weigh in. Hi, it's Dave Panagor from Provincetown, Massachusetts. Here on the Outer Cape, we have broadband, on paper through one provider. But in practice, our upload and download speeds are so slow, you could count it on your right hand or your left hand, but not on all ten fingers. This severely hampers our local economy. Hi, this is Lon Seidman. I'm a full-time YouTube creator located in Essex, Connecticut. My biggest frustration with Internet performance is that ISPs and policymakers are focused primarily on the download speeds, but not contemplating the economic impact of upload speeds. It takes me about 45 minutes to upload a video to one of the five content platforms I work with. And this is the absolute fastest speed that I can purchase, even with fiber optic lines running right past the end of my driveway. Yet I can download the same video on that same internet plan in about a minute and a half. The problem is that in many parts of New England, this is all we get because we have regional ISP monopolies that have absolutely no market pressure to improve service. The Federal Communications Commission issued the 2018 Broadband Deployment Report about a year ago. In it, the commission detailed the percentage of urban and rural areas in each state with access to broadband, which they define as 25 Mbps download and 3 Mbps upload. The biggest broadband gap in New England is in the rural areas of northern states. In Maine, nearly all urban residents have access to broadband, compared with only 85.7% of rural residents. And in Vermont, more than 98% of urban areas have access, but that's less than 80% in rural areas. And that's most of the state. 
VPR's John Dillon takes a look at the challenges and the renewed efforts to bring broadband to Vermont's underserved areas, especially the Northeast Kingdom, the rural corner of the state bordered by the Connecticut River and the Canadian border. Remember this sound? For Jenny Green, who lives in North Danville, the anachronistic tones of a dial-up modem are not a reminder of the past. It's how she connects with the digital world today. I, I would say this is longer than usual. And frankly, when it gets like this, I just say the heck with it. A blue wheel turned slowly clockwise on her computer screen, and almost five minutes pass before a website opens. I, I've lectured all my friends to not send email to this email address because if there's more than two, it takes forever for them to load. God forbid there's a picture. When Green wants faster speed, she'll drive into Danville to the library or local bakery. But that's not secure. She knows she'll soon have to do much more online, such as banking. And for that, she needs a much faster and safer connection. The reality of, of something just like paying bills, I, I can imagine that the day is coming when you can't pay them with a stamp. Green's internet inconvenience also has a financial cost. She lives alone in a beautifully renovated farmhouse. But at 83, she eventually wants to move to town. And she knows her North Danville place will fetch a lower price without adequate internet. And being a broadband backwater has a financial cost for the state as a whole. I'm in that demographic they're looking for, you know, these uh, tech workers that, that work remotely. Jonathan Baker is chief technology officer for Gain Life, a startup based in Boston. He's got internet at his home office outside of Danville, but it's a fairly slow DSL service. Which maxes out at about seven down and one up, which is just, uh, you know, it's late 90s speeds. A bit of tech speak here. Those numbers refer to speeds at which data can move. So Baker gets 7 megabits per second of data download and one uploading. That's well below the current minimum definition of broadband set by the Federal Communications Commission, which is 25 MBPS download and 3 up. So when Baker needs to upload files that are gigabits in size, he has to drive to a co-working space in Lindenville. Because otherwise... Uploading a gigabyte of data on the connection I have at the house is uh, hours and hours and hours. Last year, the state launched a program that will spend $10,000 apiece to attract remote workers to Vermont. Baker says instead, the state should allocate the money to improving broadband. I mean, the whole motivation behind that is to move away from the cities. So people will say, oh, well, you know, those people, they can move to Burlington or Montpelier, right, where there's, there's, there's good internet. Well, that's not what we want to do. What, the whole idea behind being a remote worker is you can, you know, move to a rural area and live kind of a lifestyle. The lack of internet is particularly acute in the Northeast Kingdom, where only about 47% of residents and business have access to broadband that meets the FCC definition. Statewide, 73% of the addresses are served by internet at those speeds or greater. The Northeast Kingdom Collaborative works to improve economic and community development in the region. Its director, Catherine Sims, says the NEK is lagging further and further behind the rest of Vermont, even compared to other rural areas. So broadband is a big focus of her job these days. When you don't have access to internet or internet that's reliable or high speed enough, it means you can't 
work remotely and do your job. Your kid might, you know, not have access to the educational opportunities that other kids with higher speed internet do. This digital divide is not new. It has roots in the deregulated telecom world that's left rural areas behind. Clay Purvis is the state's director of telecommunications and connectivity. He points out that unlike traditional telephone service, internet and cable companies are not required to serve a customer. Broadband is kind of open to the vagaries of competition, and federal law, the federal policy has always been light touch. We're, we're, we're going to not regulate this. We're going to let the free market solve it. And so urban areas and rural areas are divided. There's no parity. And bringing broadband to the hinterlands is not cheap. The state estimates it will cost $500 million to $1.4 billion to bring fiber-optic internet all around Vermont. The legislature and Governor Phil Scott obviously don't have that kind of money, but there is an intense focus on broadband this session. Scott wants to raise $1 million in bonds to help communities with connectivity projects, and House Speaker Mitzi Johnson says broadband is a top priority. Putting that priority into action is a main focus of the House Energy and Technology Committee. Laura Sibelia from Dover is the committee's vice chair. She says a bill being drafted now includes state bond money and an additional state staff person to help towns. We want to provide enough support for rural towns where, you know, we've got a a farmer and a teacher and a seamstress maybe, you know, uh, running the town. They're not telecommunications experts. So we want to make sure that we give them a chance to help their people and that we provide enough support. So that's what I think we're trying to do here this year. You lucked out. You managed to come on my monthly cookie baking. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. They're good. Mm. Help yourself. At Jenny Green's house in North Danville, we're still waiting for the New York Times webpage to slowly load on her laptop. We joke about the snail-like service, and the delay gives me time to sample some of her delicious home-baked oatmeal raisin cookies. But then, Green makes a serious point about a state struggling to serve its citizens with an essential tool of modern life. The Internet is, is a utility at this point. It is a necessity in the state of our culture. And for it not to be provided uh, statewide, every hollow, every mountaintop, all over, is unacceptable. What's needed, she says, is a public works program on the scale of the Rural Electrification Administration that brought electricity to the last corners of the Northeast Kingdom during the Depression. But for now, as soon as the snow subsides a bit, Green says she'll probably buy a satellite dish for improved Internet. The state doesn't count that service as broadband, but Green says it may be better than nothing. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Dillon. But as rural communities get broadband access, there are questions about who should provide it. Recently, the small town of Charlemont in the northwest corner of Massachusetts made an interesting choice when it came to building a broadband network for the town. We love it here. It's dark at night. There's no, not a lot of streetlights around. You can see stars. That's why I live here, and a lot of people would love to live in this area, but with the way telecommunications is today, with people being able to work from home, they can't work from home in our in our town. That's Trevor Mackey. He's on Charlemont's Broadband Committee. 
the town didn't previously have very good broadband access, and recently Comcast offered to build the town a network. But at a special town meeting in December of 2018, the town's residents decided against it, instead opting to build their own broadband network. We know each other in this town. We're a small town. You know if there's a problem, you know who you're going to come knocking on the door to. And I don't think any member of the committee wanted to have their neighbor saying, you sold us a bill of goods. He told us that they expect the network will be ready in early 2021. While getting broadband access to rural areas is a big concern, that doesn't always mean that urban areas have complete access. Many city residents feel left out of the conversation with slow access, high cost, and no competition from multiple carriers. These problems are felt most acutely in low-income and minority communities. We invited an Ellen Katz, Consumer Counsel for the State of Connecticut, and Janice Fleming, CEO of Strategic Outreach Services. She's a community organizer in Hartford. Ellen and Janice, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Ellen, I'm going to start with you. Maybe you can explain in your mind what exactly broadband access is supposed to mean. Well, what I hope it means, what I think it should mean, is that every citizen has universal access to affordable high-speed broadband. That's not what we have yet because there's no rules that require that like we have with electricity and, say, running water. How does Connecticut do uh, when it comes to broadband access in terms of statewide coverage? Now, Connecticut is the most connected state in the nation. I feel like I should set the bar there. However, we still see lots of people, lots of consumers, particularly in the quiet corners, who have access to almost nothing or only very, very low-quality dial-up. But also, one of the issues that that we spend a lot of time on is the urban digital divide. The folks in the communities, which tend to be lower income communities in our urban centers, where we have a lot of consumers who don't have access to good broadband and what they have access to is very expensive. Why is that? What's the limitation for people in urban areas to get better broadband access? Well, If you look at the existing telecom providers, they have a business model, and their business model is they go where there's the most money, and there's not a lot of incentive to upgrade infrastructure in these urban areas where it it can cost a lot of money because you have to tear up the streets and go underground, and these tend to be consumers at the lower end of the income spectrum, so if they're they're able to afford anything, they're buying probably a, a lower package, a lower price package, and so... It's an economic barrier, I think, for a lot of the existing carriers, which is why we've been working with cities and folks like Janice Fleming to say, all right, how do we get broadband in the hands of these people? Janice, maybe you can explain from your standpoint what the issue is with broadband access in urban areas, specifically Hartford, where you work. Yes. When we were first made aware of this issue, it was coming from a lot of the small businesses in which we work with. That's how I actually met Ellen Katz. But as we dug deeper in the issue, we realized that it was impacting not just small businesses, but communities of parents more specifically. We have a lot of our Hartford students who are being bused to suburban schools in the way that they communicate uh, with parents uh, about homework is, is through the Internet. And what we were finding is that a lot of our residents couldn't afford 
the cost of the broadband service alone or whether it was in a package and whether and if even if they had the discounted package at 999 it wasn't providing to Ellen Point the broadband strength that would allow a five or six family three or four family to all work online together so essentially we found that you had kids sitting outside of McDonald's kids who couldn't complete their homework because of the cutbacks, libraries are closing earlier, and that technology in and of itself, broadband services in and of itself, is no longer a luxury. I'd love to have you talk more about that because I, I'm I'm thinking about where we are in terms of technology in 2019 and where perhaps we should be. And when you say it's no longer a luxury, is it your sense that it's still being priced as a luxury, that it's still being provided to people as something that you can buy if you want it. But what, what, what you're saying is this is something that's necessary for students to, to survive. Absolutely. I see it no different than a book. And if we're not careful, we will have people comparing what it was when you didn't allow minorities to have access to books. And now we're not having, letting, allowing minorities to have access to technology in a way where it's fair and equitable across the board. So what's a solution for this, though, Ellen? If you if you want to make sure the costs are low enough for people to have this service in their home, make it widely available to everyone, there's, there's a little bit of a, an inflection point there where carriers aren't going to want to invest in places where there's not some sort of subsidy, where there's not somebody paying the bills, but you also can't expect families who are living at the lower end of the income scale to take on $100 a a month to pay for internet so that their kids can have the same leg up Mm -hmm. as kids in in West Hartford. What do you do about that? Well, I think what you have to do is look at every model that's available and every option. And for example, Mayor Boughton in Danbury is, I just heard him testify before the legislature, he's looking at a community-wide network that he's doing a public-private partnership with that will touch every house with high-speed broadband for 15 bucks a month. And that would be a complete game changer. Mm-hmm. And there's also the potential if you have – and I'm, I'm not talking, you know, government runs the internet, but I'm talking about government enables access for everyone. That's how we got electricity. <laughs> FDR said we are going to make sure every citizen has, has uh, access to electricity, and that's what we need to do. And so there's models like that. In some communities, they're providing broadband-enabled laptops to the low-income students. But if you have, you know, a large population that you need to serve, then you're really talking about you need to bring it to every home. And that's why we've seen so many municipalities who are interested in the models like Mayor Boughton is talking about. Because it's not just students. It's also when my son went to apply for his first job in high school, I kept driving him around. He kept coming out of the stores. And I was like, go talk to someone. He said, no, you have to apply online. Mm -hmm. So for entry-level positions... The vast majority have to apply online as well. So it's it's an economic issue, it's an education issue, it's a health issue. So it's an infrastructure issue. We are talking about in the state of Connecticut developing urban cities. The more you talk about infrastructure, the more you're talking about opportunities to address old broadband systems. And I would argue that we missed an opportunity when we were redeveloping Route forty four to use that as a pilot. 
once you have the ground up, there's no better time to talk about laying down conduit than that time. And for listeners who are outside of this immediate area, maybe you can explain exactly what, what this meant. For for quite some time, a main thoroughfare Absolutely. of the largest African-American community in Hartford was essentially torn up because of a big water project. Mm-hmm. But at that time, that while that water project was going in, there wasn't fiber optics going in the ground. That is exactly right. We, we focus on urban and rural, but I can assure you there are a lot of suburban communities as well that don't have access to broadband services, given locations or whatever. But I would like to see when we're, as the Connecticut begin to continue to develop its urban infrastructure, that that conversation is a part of it, that when we're breaking up streets, is there a way to, to lay out conduit at that moment for cost savings? Mm-hmm. You know, it's already open. We don't have to reopen it and to ensure that it benefits not just businesses, because in urban communities, businesses are located around schools. That was obvious in our research as well. I want to thank Janice Fleming and Ellen Katz for joining us today and bringing us this issue. Janice and Ellen, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for having us. Coming up, we'll whoosh down a giant luge in New Hampshire. But first, the lobster war brewing along the U.S.-Canada border. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. There's a section of ocean along the border between the U.S. and Canada that's considered a gray zone. It's a stretch of over 200 square miles that the U.S. and Canada both say they've got claim to. And in recent years, as seas warm and lobsters move north, this gray zone has become prime lobster fishing ground sparking tensions between American and Canadian lobstermen, both trying to capitalize on this catch. A new documentary from David Abel and Andy Laub, Lobster War, the fight over the world's richest fishing grounds, highlights the increasing tension along this gray zone. Abel has covered environmental issues for the Boston Globe for years. David, welcome back to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Why don't you start by telling us about this gray zone? Describe the place, if you would. So it's actually a really beautiful place, and the gray zone is all around this one island called Machaya Seal Island. It's basically a rock, and it's been a puffin colony for a very long time. That rock has been the center of a dispute that goes back to the end of the Revolutionary War, and both the United States and Canada have claimed this island, and nobody really cares too much about the island But the waters around the island are what both countries really are laying claim to. And those waters were not terribly important to either country for generations. However, in the last decade or so, as the waters in the Gulf of Maine have warmed faster than nearly any other body of water on the planet, lobsters have moved north into those waters, which are cooler than the waters further to the south. And as a result of that, the lobster population there has boomed. And that boom has led the Canadians, who long ceded those waters to the Americans, to say, hey, those are our fishing grounds too, and we're going to fish them. And 
that decision has led to a surge of Canadians fishing in that area, and that has led to all kinds of conflict with the Americans who traditionally fish that area, and that has involved all kinds of gear conflict, sabotage, people hauling each other's traps, and so forth. So let's now talk through the climatic conditions that have changed over the course of decades that have allowed this to become this prime lobster fishing territory. Explain what exactly is happening that is forcing the large lobster population to move from places where you could traditionally fish lobster in southern New England up to this point in northern New England, the far tip of Maine, that's become in dispute. So as we all know, the planet is warming and the oceans absorb a lot of the carbon dioxide and a lot of that heat. And that has caused oceans throughout the world to warm. But the Gulf of Maine, for a variety of reasons, has warmed faster than just about any other body of water on the planet. And that is part due to the Gulf Stream and something called the Labrador Stream uh, that brings cool water in from the north, from, from the Greenland and Newfoundland areas. And those, those streams are being disrupted by the warming. And that has had all kinds of consequences for species throughout the Atlantic coast, but particularly in the Gulf of Maine. And we've seen a collapse in the cod fishery, for example, which is the iconic species that brought Europeans to the United States uh, centuries ago and helped found uh, the, the 13 colonies and provide an economic engine for them. And lobsters later became a significant source of revenue for our economy. And for many years, they provided a significant income along the shores of southern New England. Connecticut, even Long Island Sound, had a substantial lobster fishery. But the waters there have also warmed, and they're now so warm that the lobster population in that area, south of Cape Cod, through Long Island Sound, has collapsed. In some areas, the lobster population is less than uh, 90% what of what it was at its peak. And that has led to hundreds of uh, people who traditionally fished lobster for generations to have to find another line of work. And that line of warming where lobsters can thrive has moved further north. If you move even further north from mid-coast Maine up into Canada, the lobster population over the last decade has actually increased substantially because those waters, which have also warmed, are now in a sweet spot. And lobsters thrive within a relatively narrow band of temperatures. And so this points to another key piece of the tension in your documentary. If the warming temperatures are pushing the lobster into this prime fishing ground and there's potentially a peak either here or coming. Now you've got these disputed territories in which Americans and Canadians are trying to capitalize on what could be a very small window for this prime lobster fishery. It gets to some of the other tensions. Here's lobstermen Norbert Lemieux and Patrick Feeney, Christian Porter of the Maine Lobstermen's Association, and Cynthia Rowden. She's select woman for Cutler, Maine. For 1984, there was no Canadians in this area. There was no grazo. Each year goes by, they bring more and more fishermen over. We're talking two countries, so it's a lot harder to resolve differences. People get angry, and it's getting more dangerous every day. Every lobster that's caught by a Canadian is one lobster that's not caught by an American. 
and that's you know dollars you know not not in the local economy which we need drastically. Walk us through what these tensions mean with more Canadian fishermen, more American fishermen battling in this area. Walk us through what exactly this means for the people who are fighting over these lobsters. You know, there's a, a, often tension between lobstermen on, you know, the same side of the border. Here we have a situation where the waters have become increasingly crowded and you have different kinds of gear and the tides are incredibly powerful in this area in the gray zone. And what ends up happening is you have lobster trawls, which is a series of lobster traps that are connected on the bottom of the ocean, all too often ending up on top of each other, in part because there's just only so much space, and also in part because each fisherman from both sides of the border divide are trying to lay claim to a certain patch of the ocean. And and what we've seen is we've seen lines that get tangled in t- knots, and that can be very dangerous to pull up when lobstermen are trying to to get their gear up. We've seen people hauling up other people's traps and taking each other's lobsters. We've seen sabotage. We've seen people cut lines just because they are trying to say, we don't want you here. I, I want to play another clip here from your documentary. Here's Richard Wally. He's from the University of Maine School of Marine Sciences. These guys don't have any other option. They don't have another fishery to move to as they did back in, say, the 1960s and 70s when ground fish were more abundant. We're perilously dependent on this single fishery. And David Abel, you've you've covered and uh, done a film about cod that you mentioned earlier. There are so many other species of fish that through either climate change or overfishing are not part of a viable fishery anymore. Now, because of this boom, people have focused on lobster. Maybe you can pick up on what the professor is saying there. How problematic is it that this fishery is so dependent on this one species? Right now, it... It's the boom times. There's a lobster rush. And if you drive around uh, that region, you will see lots of new, shiny new pickup trucks and people putting on additions on their houses and buying bigger boats. And in our film, you see the main character from the Cutler area of Maine just buys a new boat at 61 years old. And he invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in that. The concern is that what has happened is that this boom has caused people to spend a lot of money and essentially buy mortgages that they're going to have to repay. And so they increasingly have to catch more to pay for some of these increasing expenses that they now have. And the concern is that if the lobster population really does drop precipitously. And in 2017, it dropped, I believe, 15 percent. And that scared a lot of people, although it apparently bounced back in 2018. We're still waiting for the official numbers. But the concern is that if there is a significant drop, that could cause a crash, an economic crash. What lessons do you think that the lobster fishery can learn from the collapse of, of the cod fishery? So in my last film, uh, which is called Sacred Cod, 
which chronicles uh, how the collapse of the cod fishery affected fishermen all throughout the region as well. There is one lesson, which is diversify. And that means find other species to fish. That means find other ways to support your economy. And in Maine, we are seeing that on a variety of levels. There are increasing fisheries for seaweed. There is an effort to bring large-scale aquaculture, salmon farming to that part of Maine. So there, people are mindful that the lobster fishery might not be forever and that they have to figure out other potential sources of income. But of course, those things can take a long time and they don't have the same tradition or independent lifestyles that lobstering brings. David, you've been an environmental reporter for a long time. And as we've covered the environment here, we sometimes run into a problem of trying to humanize something like climate change or large-scale environmental problems so that people can really understand them. Do, do you sense that, that this issue, the very human issue of people going out into the ocean to do a very dangerous job, uh, to try to make money for their families in what could be a, a declining fishery, competing with other people who are trying to do exactly the same thing from another country, do, do you have the sense that this is the sort of story that helps people understand what climate change is all about? Well, my hope is that, again, that people see that the warming of the planet and the warming of our oceans is not some intangible, abstract phenomenon that's going to, you know, affect our children in 50 years, but that we are seeing it play out in many ways. And, and it perhaps is no more visible than how it affects some of the iconic species that we in New England have lived off for generations. And we are seeing historic changes in our waters. Uh, we're seeing that not just with lobster, we're not, not just with cod, but we're seeing black sea bass, which traditionally was fished in the mid-Atlantic regions, move further north, creeping into our waters. We're seeing right whales which are on the brink of extinction as their food sources have been moving further north and making it more difficult for them to put on the weight they need. But the point here is that we are seeing epic changes to the historic species that have been in our waters from the time and well before then that the pilgrims arrived. And we have a new world that we're facing as our fishermen and our region tries to adapt to these changes. The film is called Lobster War, the fight over the world's richest fishing grounds. And the director is David Abel, a longtime environmental reporter for the Boston Globe. You can find information about where this documentary is screening around our region on nextnewengland.org. David, always good to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up, we'll sip tea with the Snow Rangers of Mount Washington. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust. 
The late winter snowstorms and frequent high winds have prompted more avalanche warnings by the Mount Washington Avalanche Center in New Hampshire. The center is staffed by snow rangers. Those are the folks who offer warnings like human-triggered avalanches are likely and will be large enough to bury and kill a person on open slopes and gullies. Yikes. Yeah, the snow rangers of Mount Washington, they don't mess around. And as NHPR's Sean Hurley discovered, they don't want you to either. Once I climb aboard the search and rescue snowcat at the Pick'em Notch parking lot, the director of the Mount Washington Avalanche Center, Frank Karras, tells me he finds the snow ranger name a little old-fashioned. Because we're the only avalanche center in the, in the east, you know, that snow ranger name is stuck for longer. What would be a more appropriate title? Forecaster, I guess. But that's kind of it doesn't address the fact that we do rescues. That's the other weird thing where... We're one of only two avalanche centers that also do rescue. Our heaving, vibrating, two-and-a-half-mile churn up the Tuckerman Ravine Trail to Hermit Lake will take about 30 minutes. Lily, the avalanche dog, runs out in front of us, excitedly sniffing the snow here and there as though a rescue is underway. A human under the snow gives off a plume that moves through the avalanche debris, and they can smell it and identify the alert to the the person or the article in the snow. Avalanche dogs seldom find living people, Karis tells me grimly. And dogs like Lily are most often used for body recovery. As the snowy shark fin of Mount Washington comes into view, Karis slows to assess the half-dozen ravines below the peak. Checking these avalanche paths is a daily part of the job. Signs of avalanche activity. You can see the, the old crown lines still up high. What is a crown line? It's basically the snow that remains after an avalanche slab breaks off. It's like a sharp line in the snow. You can see them up there. I follow a frost-bright line tracing between dark cliffs and frozen waterfalls, and then across the draping open bowl of Tuckerman's Ravine, which Karis calls the Roman Colosseum. We get these natural avalanches, you know, that deposit eight or ten feet of avalanche debris across a football field of space in the bowl and it's just unsurvivable and uh, I really just brace myself for something significant happening at some point soon you know like six seven eight ten people all buried all at once killed you know it's really um, very much within the realm of possibility. Imagining terrible things, it turns out, is part of the job. On high hazard days, Karis and the three other snow rangers will sit together and pitch disaster scenarios. What if this? What if that? Since the 1970s, there have been 15 avalanche-related fatalities here, Karis tells me, as we head inside the snow rangers' headquarters, a sturdy log cabin halfway up the mountain. Karis puts a kettle on, but after scrounging the cupboards, can only find a single tea bag and one cup. Oh, it's cracked. Dang. So you get one tea bag and a cracked cup. That's the kind of (laughs) life you have to live. (laughs) Oh, man. It's like living through the Depression. (laughs) We pass the leaky cup back and forth. Avalanches are just an amazing phenomenon. Sometimes there's a a loud crack, like the crack of a whip, you know, and I've seen that before, triggered that before, and you turn and, like, just see the slope 
turning to a plate of glass that's breaking and flowing. I have been caught, yeah, a couple times. In fact, he says, all the Mount Washington Snow Rangers have personal experiences with avalanches. You see the slope crack around your feet, and all of a sudden everything's moving, and and you're on this slab that's moving, and uh, hard to stay on your feet. You can do your best, but once you're moving, you're basically going where the avalanche wants you to go. Sometimes people will ask, well, why are we paying four guys to go forecast avalanches? Like, that's just stupid. Why are people even going out there? Although avalanche fatalities here and across the U.S. have been level for the last few decades, Kara says that's despite the fact that there are more people than ever moving through the snowy woods and mountains. Particularly in the last decade, backcountry skiing has just exploded. So the reality there is that, like, we're doing well. Between avalanche education and avalanche forecasting, you know, we think those two things are are big contributors to that trend. On the day I visit, the avalanche rating is low. But just two days earlier, following a storm that dropped a foot of snow, Karras and his team issued an avalanche warning, which means only one thing. We know that we'll see avalanches. If we don't see avalanches and we issued a warning, we screwed up like we were wrong. So we haven't done that yet. While there have been only a handful of incidents in the range this winter, Frank Harris says the risk is constant and daily. If there's snow on the mountains, there are rangers on the mountains watching it. We love what we're doing, and we know that there would be potentially serious consequences if we didn't do what we're doing for the public. And if the cracked cup and lone tea bag are anything to go by, the snow rangers aren't spending much time in the cabin drinking tea. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sean Hurley. Now to a smaller hill, quite a bit less dangerous, but no less thrilling. Your town probably has one kind of like it. It's a great hill for sledding, a place where you can pick up a little bit of speed and go for a ride in the snow. But imagine if the best sledding hill in town was an immaculately groomed, steep vertical drop down a winding luge run. John Kalish, he found that hill in Thornton, New Hampshire, and he brings us this story. The Baldwin family has a steep hill that drops about 150 feet from the start of the luge run to the finish. It takes about a half a minute to slide down the winding 700-foot track. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this luge, as everyone refers to it, has existed since 1965. Initially, the kids slid on plastic sleds, but now inflated tubes are used. It's deceptively fast. As soon as you get on this thing and you start going down, you know there's no brakes. Sam Coase is one of the eight kids who grew up in this blended family. You can drag your hands. You might throw a foot out now and then if you really get freaked out. But you're not stopping going down that hill. The luge is unique in that people go down in trains of tubes connected. The more tubes, the greater the momentum. You sit on the tube, you feel this power behind you shoving you down the hill and whipping you from side to side, and then you get to the bottom and your adrenaline is coming out your ears. That's Heather Pedrick Baldwin, the family matriarch. She and her husband Gunner take great joy watching grandchildren and a couple of great-grandkids slide down the hill. My reward is really measured by the decibel level of their screams as I hear them going down the track. That happens every time. To me, that is music. 
Gunnar Baldwin is now 81. The luge is clearly his engineering project. It started out with just a few turns, but now has seven or eight. Five years ago, Baldwin started using a snowblower, but before that, he did it all with just a snow shovel. It's become, for me, almost an obsession, I have to admit. It's an obsession to make it better every year. This year, Baldwin built a pair of tunnels on the luge run because he thought it would be fun to slide through them. The tunnel at the start is 16 feet long. At night, the luge is lit by LED lights. And I think I enjoy it more in the dark. There's kind of more of like that fear factor of like not seeing where the next turn is. And when I was younger, there were more instances where I was coming out of the turns, getting flown out of my tube. That's Louisa Noble who, like many of the grandchildren, went down the luge for the first time as a toddler in her mom's lap. Here is her mother, Allie Noble. At the bottom, you're thinking, okay, good, I'm done. I don't need to go again. And then you hike up to the top, and you're like, well, yeah, I'm going to take another run. (laughs) Gunnar Baldwin loves to watch his eight kids, 17 grandchildren, and their spouses enjoy the luge in Thornton. But oddly enough, he himself doesn't slide. On a recent night with a mercury in the teens, Baldwin was out blowing snow in the darkness. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Kalish in Thornton, New Hampshire. Last week, we brought you a few stories about how state houses were coping with important issues, but none quite like what Maine lawmakers were facing. There was a bill brought to the legislature by a group of earnest fourth graders that would have clearly identified a specific species of chickadee as the state bird. You might be asking, wait, there's more than one kind of chickadee? Well, yes, and Massachusetts has already claimed the common black-capped chickadee as its state bird. The bill would have forced Maine lawmakers to consider whether the less common boreal chickadee might be the better choice. Sounds like a great debate, right? Well, Not in Augusta. Lawmakers voted down the bill unanimously in committee, dealing at a potentially lethal blow. That's too bad for the fourth graders and too bad for the bird lovers, Maine Public Radio's Steve Missler found, because they think it's an issue worth deciding. Brian Olson, an associate professor of biology and ecology at the University of Maine, refuses to take sides in the great chickadee debate. He says the black cap has a song in the springtime. That song is not flashy nor presumptuous, it just gets the job done. And that song, he says, should not be confused with the call we typically associate with the black-capped. Olson says that signature sound actually has a purpose. You might not know, but the uh, black-capped chickadee call, that that very charismatic chickadee-dee-dee, the number of Ds at the end is a judgment that the chickadee makes about how dangerous a particular threat would be. Olson says the black-capped chickadees at his home are not afraid of them. Not at all. Um, In fact, they seem fairly confident they could take me in a fair fight. And the boreal chickadee? It has no song, Olson says. Not frivolous birds, the boreal chickadees. But the boreal does have a unique call. It's likely that many Mainers, especially those who have not ventured into the northern part of the state, have not heard the Boreal's call before, much less seen one. That's because its habitat is Boreal forests. Olson says the Boreal does venture to the southern part of the state from time to time, but it's rare. But back to the debate at hand. It goes back to 1927, when the Maine legislature named the chickadee the state bird. The problem, says Maine Audubon's Nick Lund, is this. It's not a bird. It's a family of birds. So uh, it would be like saying the state dog is a dog or the state pizza is pizza. In fact, Lund says, 
Maine is one of just two states that hasn't specified which species of bird is the official one. The other state is Utah, which generically lists the seagull as its bird of choice, a curious decision on its face given that there's no sea in Utah. But in fact, it was the California gull that saved residents there from an onslaught of crickets that were decimating crops in the mid-1800s. Likewise, it was the chickadee's ravenous appetite for insects that apparently factored into the legislature's decision to anoint it official status in Maine. But which one, the boreal or the black-capped? And Lund says it's a tough decision. They both stay in Maine all year. They both are friendly and are attracted to humans. And though you need to be in their presence to understand, seem optimistic, cheerful, friendly, resourceful, and industrious. Ornithologists warn that climate change is pushing the boreal farther and farther north, so its presence here could become increasingly rare. The black-capped, found in states throughout the Northeast, is likely here to stay. In any event, the issue could be divisive, as it is in Olson's family. His son likes the black-capped because it's common. His daughter, the boreal, because it's rare. So we are a house divided. For his part, Olson says Maine could just go with the common loon. That way, he says, the state wouldn't have to change its license plate, one version of which already features the black-capped. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Steve Missler. The sounds of the boreal and black-capped chickadee in this story came from recordists Mark Dennis and Doug Hitchcock, who submitted them to the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Oh, and if you'd like to take a quiz to test your knowledge of the state birds of New England, go to nextnewengland.org. Good luck. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Next New England. And if you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. You can follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Our show is produced by Lily Tyson. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. And our executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had help this week from Kion Wolf, Glenn Alexander, and Mike Garth. Our music is by Todd Merrill and Goodnight Blue Moon. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and The Public Radio.